0: Hello and welcome, and maybe even welcome back, to The Infinite Room, a little room in which Looking Glass imagines big things. I'm Andy White, Looking Glass Ensemble member and Director of Community Engagement, and for a number of years now, both onstage and offstage, Looking Glass has been confronting or embracing, depending on your perspective, I suppose, the presence of Alzheimer's disease and its impact both on individuals and on our community. Now, some of you may have seen our 2013 production of Still Alice, an adaptation of Lisa Genova's novel about a 50-year-old college professor, a professor of cognitive psychology, no less, an expert on the workings of the brain, who must come to terms with the diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's. Now, that production was adapted for the stage and directed by Looking Glass Ensemble member Christine Mary Dunford, who has long been interested in how memory works or sometimes doesn't work the way we wish it would. Christine also collaborated with Dr. Darby Moorhart at Northwestern Mesolim Center for Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease to create a program called the Memory Ensemble, which uses improvisation, theater improv techniques, to work with people with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. Well, we're going to talk with Christine and Darby about all of that in a future episode, but their work with the Memory Ensemble became a doorway to a larger partnership between arts organizations and medical providers called the Arts for Brain Health Coalition. Now, this coalition activates collaborations between health and arts providers – designing and presenting programs that use creative engagement to enrich the lives of people with memory loss and dementia and those who care for them. What a cool thing, you exclaim. Tell me, who else is part of this? I must know. Well, all right, all right, I will. Since 2016, Arts for Brain Health Coalition members have included, at various times, Northwestern's Mesolum Center for Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease, Rush University's Alzheimer's Disease Center, the Memory Center from the University of Chicago, and those are the medical-slash-clinical entities. And the arts organizations include the Art Institute of Chicago, Chicago Dance Therapy, Good Memories Choir, Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, La Brocha, Looking Glass Theater Company, Loyola University Museum of Art, Lundius Creative Consulting, the Old Town School of Folk Music, and Robert Jordan and Video Family Diaries. Now, in ordinary times, the Arts for Brain Health Coalition has provided half-day programs of art-making, dance, music, and improvisation for people with Alzheimer's and related dementia and their caregivers. These are, honestly, some of the most rewarding days I've ever been a part of at Looking Glass, whether as an actor or an ensemble member or a staff member or whatever Those days observing those sessions are consistently in the top tier of my looking-glass experiences because you get to see firsthand the impact that the opportunity to be creative has on people, how welcome it is, which is also probably an indication of how infrequently, too infrequently, it comes along. These sessions have been hosted at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Lincoln Square, at the Art Institute of Chicago downtown, at the National Museum of Mexican Art in Pilsen and at the Carter Woodson Regional Library in the Washington Heights neighborhood. And we've been intentional about bringing these programs to neighborhoods and communities in our city that are underinvested because we know that Alzheimer's disease is underdiagnosed and undertreated in those communities. And that brings us to this episode's conversation with two women who work in this field and on the ground in communities of color on a regular basis Karen Graham and Janice Lane from one of our Arts for Brain Health partners, the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. Karen Graham and Janice Lane, thank you so much. Welcome to the Infinite Room, Mm -hmm. and thank you for joining us this afternoon. To those listeners, let me just give a quick brief introduction. Karen Graham is the Manager of Research Education at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center, or RADC, as we'll refer to it sometimes during our conversation. She works in close partnership with other core groups in the aging field, and this includes acting as a liaison between communities of color and the RADC. Janice Lane is the Community Engagement Coordinator of Rush University Medical Center. The two of them work together frequently. I've had the privilege of working with them both through Looking Glass's participation in the Arts for Brain Health Coalition. Karen and Janice, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Karen, just starting with you, can you talk a little bit about the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center, where its focus is, and also a little bit more about what your role is there? I gave a brief introduction, but if you could expand on that a little bit, that would be great.
1: So the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center is one of the a federally funded Alzheimer's disease center in the country. And our goal is to help seniors live disability-free lives. The center is basically a research center. We do both epidemiological research, which is totally observational. We have several studies that are longitudinal or epidemiological, the religious order study, uh, which consists of priest, nuns, and brothers. And then we have the memory and aging project, which is consisting mostly of people who live in continuing care retirement communities and some community organizations uh, in and around Chicago. then um, the minority aging research study, Uh, And the African-American course uh, studies, which look at African-Americans and how we age over time, as well as the Latino course study, which looks at uh, Latinx community and how they age over time. And then we go into clinical trials. And so we have uh, a number of clinical trials that are going on that is looking at either ways to prevent Alzheimer's disease or hopefully treat Alzheimer's disease, because currently there is no treatment that can stop the disease Unfortunately, the, the work that I've been doing, uh, especially since the pandemic, has really been trying to listen to what the communities of color that I'm working with, what are their needs and concerns. One of the first needs they had was education about COVID 19. And so we created webinars that focused on African Americans, Latinx communities. And then the next thing they said is that they needed PPE. So we've had a number of PPE drives. And then we looked at uh, what are the needs of our essential workers. And so, using a grant from the AIDS Foundation of Chicago, we created uh, laundromat events around the city. So, we've had two thus far one uh, in Inglewood, one on the near west side, right down the street from Rush, and uh, another one upcoming in Pilsen. And hopefully, we'll be having one in Austin. We've been really trying to continue to keep our relationships out in the community since we can't really go out right now because of the pandemic, but uh, listen to the concerns and try to address those concerns.
0: During non-COVID times, would you be in direct contact with the seniors themselves, with the citizens, as opposed to mainly sort of it funneling through the organization?
1: Yes. And so last year we gave about 500 educational programs out in the community. We saw over 20,000 seniors. Obviously, that number's got to be much smaller this year. Um, but yeah. yeah, so we, we try to stay in contact with as many organizations as possible because we mm-hmm. know that when the pandemic finally ends, we want to continue to have those relationships and not have to reinvent the wheel.
0: Janice, can
2: you, same thing, talk a little bit about the work that you do at Brush. My position is new-ish. I've been there, it's mm-hmm. going on two years now. Somebody thought that our seniors in this study are aging. We're losing track of some of them. Some of them are moving away and forgetting to let us know where they are. Some of them are possibly getting sick and dying. And some of them may just have gotten tired of the study. So what I do, my job is to connect with those who are enrolled in the studies and to reinvite them or the ones that are active, create activities and events for them to get new information and also just have a good time. So it's up to, to my department to connect with people, remind them of the great work they're doing as a volunteer in our studies, to thank them, and to have events, sometimes small events, sometimes larger events, to celebrate their participation in the study.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, you said um, sometimes just have, have a good time. So what does that look like? Um, I think you were hinting
2: at it with uh, the kinds of events you yeah, about. Yeah, um, like this last year, it was the 15th anniversary of the MARS study, Minority Aging Research Study. That was headed by the... Uh, research coordinator of that study. They had a celebration at the Croc Center on the south side. It was a big deal, it was a get dressed up and come hear speakers and sit down and take pictures and get information and see each other. And that was uh-huh. a big deal because it gave people who happened to be seniors who are in our study, who may, may or may not happen to be retired, to, a chance to get out, to get dressed, to come see other people and to celebrate themselves and the work they're doing to um, help find an answer to this disease called Alzheimer's. I know
0: that you know social isolation is something that we fight um, and that seniors in particular fight and seniors with dementia even more so, right? Because we, um, in our society, unfortunately, really <laughs> we segregate people all sorts of ways, but including by age. And we tend not to really want to address aging right. at all and its challenges. So it sounds like what you're offering uh, again, during non-COVID times, anyway, is the opportunity to gather as a community, to see each other, to
2: acknowledge each other, to be in community for with sure, each other. For sure. For sure. Because people mm-hmm. get lonely. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's it's real. It's real. And we have something called social prejudice. And in some of these social prejudices, we seem, as a society, to be okay to make fun of these groups or to malign these groups or to excuse these groups. And aging and getting older is one of them. Although all of us are walking in that direction if we're we're lucky. (laughs) Exactly. So it's, you know, it's just really just finding a way to honor what they're doing, honor who they are, and even honor the aging process.
0: How do you during the COVID during a pandemic relieve that sense of isolation? What strategies or tactics have you developed to combat well,
2: that? Well, we're about to start organizing. I'm going to be making a lot of phone calls, just wellness calls, wellness checks, wellness calls. Mm-hmm. And in wellness calls, a person can call and say, hey, I'm calling for Ms. Jones. Is Ms. Jones okay? How you doing, Ms. Jones? Calling for Rush. However, if you give it a little bit more time and just listen after you introduce yourself, you often get a chance to learn a little bit more about the person and to relieve some of that loneliness they may have. Sometimes people may talk and just run off at the mouth. That's fine. Other times you might have to say, okay, I wrap it up now. It's just (laughs) getting, allowing them to have a a phone call to check in on them. And there are some women I have met in this study that said they got in the study because they are a single woman living by themselves and they want somebody to, to call for them, somebody to come look for them.
0: Can each of you talk a little bit about how you came to this work? What drew you to it?
1: Uh, This is Karen. I started working at the Alzheimer's Disease Center when my daughter was a baby. I was looking for a part-time job and I was not ready to go full-time, but um, the director of our center invited me uh, to create my own Uh, job description. I did that and started working full-time when my daughter was in kindergarten. What made me stay in the job is that I have always loved working uh, with seniors, and I also have loved working out in the community. Uh, I'm fairly shy, but I like to go out and do presentations. I'm not quite sure why that is. I enjoy uh, getting a chance to talk with other seniors and helping uh, the communities that we live in. One of the things that our director, Dr. David Bennett, uh, always talks about is giving first. And so going out in the community, not just having our hand out saying, can you give me something, but really trying to find out the needs of the community, giving them those kinds of things, and then building the relationship, because it's really important to build those relationships of trust, mutual respect. And that's the thing that really has helped me, made me want to stay.
2: Janice, how about you? have been headed in this direction for many, many years. I had this bright idea about 20 years ago that I was going to create housing for seniors. And after hearing, like on NPR, uh, this group called Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons going down to Florida to entertain these senior, you know, facilities. I'm like, hey, when I get older, I want some place to if somebody to come entertain me. I want Frankie Knuckles and come play some house music. So I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking that how would this happen? But I knew I wanted to work. Uh, to create housing for for seniors who were like me. Um, so put that to the side for a second. Um, I began to work in HIV and AIDS. And a lot of the work I did was about going out to the community and having conversations and dialogue about what it was and how to, how to remain safe in communities of color. And I felt, I think I was pretty successful at that. So when this opportunity became, came open, Um, It felt like it was like right out my alley as a person who is also Mm. aging, but also have like empathy and a desire to make people who are getting older life have more uh, have a stronger quality of life. And, you know, in certain communities, you can just stand on the street corner and just walk, watch seniors who are really struggling. They're alone. They're lonely. They're impoverished and they're ill. And I just wanted to do something to maybe help change that, even if for a small group of people.
0: Even before COVID, of course, the health disparities in America, especially along the lines of race, were evident and are pretty well known and documented. Again, it's not one of those things that we as a society, care to talk about much because it reveals the cracks and the places we're falling short. But even, even uh, before COVID, uh, I was just looking this up a little bit, uh, it, in Chicago, actually, and this reflects the nationwide trends, but um, a white person on average lives 8.8 years longer than a black person. Mm-hmm. Diabetes rates among black Chicagoans are twice what they are of white Chicagoans. Deaths related to lung disease are more than 20% higher among black people compared to white. And almost two in five black adults have high blood pressure, a rate 25% higher than among whites. Um, that's from, a, you know, just quickly gleaned from a Washington Post article about health disparities. That's all pre COVID. Obviously, we know that the communities of color have borne a disproportionate burden since COVID hit our country. Can you, I guess, talk about both of those things? What are you working on specifically in communities of color that is different? What does memory care look like generally, I guess, but also particularly in the communities that you serve?
1: I do want to put another disparity statistic, and that um, African Americans are two to three times more likely to get. Alzheimer's disease, um, and that next community is one and a half times more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the general population, but the fourth leading cause of death in African American uh, community. Those disparities—it um, just seems like that is unfortunately uh, a common phenomenon. Black and brown communities are harder hit by. Those uh, diseases. And part of it has to do with with environmental toxins. Um, unfortunately, those communities uh, tend to be around areas that have more environmental toxins. As a matter of fact, our director just wrote us an email. He sends us a weekly email now, and um, he said that. Um, um, minority communities tend to live in areas that are ho- hotter, or actually in temperature hotter, and they make things like asthma and other kinds of illnesses more prevalent in our communities. The other thing is that a lot of communities of color also have food deserts, which means they have less access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Eating those kind of fruits lessen your chance for Alzheimer's disease, but all those other kinds of illnesses as well. And so we look at all of those kinds of things. Oh, and then let me just add the idea uh, about the looting, which really impacted uh, black and brown communities and took away even more resources, few resources that we already had uh, and find that some of our seniors, especially When they had the very first looting, uh, it would take them, instead of five or 10 minutes away from a pharmacy or grocery store, uh, it's taken up to 45 minutes or more to get to a grocery store or to a pharmacy that was open. So all of those things uh, make black and brown communities at a higher risk for a number of different health issues.
0: What have you seen in terms of um, either art therapy or the arts as providing some kind of healing moments or healing uh, benefits?
1: I think about uh, Without Warning, which is a support group for people with early onset Alzheimer's disease or other kinds of dementia. Um, and it's not only for those people, but also for their caregivers. And they have an art therapist uh, on the team uh, where they do lots of different art therapy programs. And it's been really, really a wonderful resource uh, for those caregivers as well as for the individuals. And also think about our Arts for Brain Health programs. Uh, where we've had half-day programs uh, normally in the summer or early fall um, that consist of improv or dancing or singing or working with the Art Institute of Chicago. All of those things have been really wonderful resources for the caregivers as well as their loved ones. Many times people think about caregiving as a stressful thing to do, and it is stressful, I can attest to that. Uh, It's sort of a cool thing to do, to go to those art programs where you're having fun. You're not thinking about all the bad sides of having dementia, Are you actually having fun together, singing along or doing some art project? It's been really, um, actually, it's been a nice thing to see for Arts for Brain Health.
2: Andy, Mm -hmm. might I add that um, uh, I am not a musician, but I utilize music every chance I get when I'm doing group activities because it democratizes a room better than anybody's speech anybody's request, you put music on and things change. Prior to coming to Rush, I worked four years at a um, drug recovery place. And I would do educational groups on HIV and hepatitis C. And some people are just getting, you know, just detoxing or just coming out of what, you know, they're high or, you know, they're there to really get clean. And some of them are very surly, don't wanna be there. You know, just all different types of people. When I put music on and just let it play, it changed everything. It just, it just did so much. So when I do my events, what I do quite often, I get a mean age of what age people were in the year of 1968. And I, I, I choose that date on purpose because that date means so much to this generation. So I choose, I choose music and I build it around, often, around that year. And so mm-hmm. it puts them at ease. It gives them flashbacks or memories. It have them singing and joining in. And before you know it, there's an opening to give information.
0: That is so fascinating. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting that it disarms people in a way, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, Janice, I know that in 2019 you put together a caregiver panel discussion at the Black Women's Expo, and as as Karen was suggesting, you know we often when we're talking about people with ADRD, with Alzheimer's or other related dementia Uh issues, um, our focus is rightly and understandably on them, but we sometimes lose sight of the caregivers, who often, you know, it's a very stress heavy and uh, takes a toll on them and their lives. Can you just talk a little bit about, the care, about
2: what you do, I guess, the necessity of care for caregivers? Well, let, let me talk about that panel for a minute. On that panel, we had two people who had personal uh, hands-on experience with being caregivers. Karen was one of them, by the way. And there was a woman there that provided respite care for caregivers. And then there was an attorney there. People need to create a team. But what I find and have found over and over again, for example, in in a family, maybe three or four people in family and three boys and one girl, it often falls on the woman in the family to be the caregiver. But what I find a lot is that uh, there's there's one person doing the work and other people say, well, I, I will help, but I'll come. It's not it's not like often it's not a team effort. And that's that's very challenging for the caregivers. And it's not necessarily because everybody else don't want to do it. Sometimes it's just family issues. Maybe one person keeps seeing like they can do it by themselves. And others, I think well, she's closest to mom. So I'll let her take care of it. To
1: create a village, to create a support system, people who can sometimes go visit, sometimes uh, take your loved one to lunch or dinner if they're still able to do that, uh, spending time with them. So you don't have to worry about always being there. That makes a big
0: difference. Janice, you and I were chatting a little bit beforehand. You mentioned that, and it's a slightly different context, but for you, you know, watching basketball can be um, replenishing in its way. You know, just doing, <laughs> yes. find, finding, identifying the things that you love and that yeah. feed you and that give you, that replenish your well a little bit.
2: Yes. Yes, for sure. I get a chance to scream.
0: I can uh-huh. scream at the television, <laughs> and,
2: and, 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 and it's something that's kind of healthy because, in what, what I'm watching, is like, you don't know the end of the story, nobody gets killed, mm-hmm. it's exciting, uh-huh. and it's right. drama, <laughs> and you have you know you have a good time. I have a good time to myself, so yeah, that, that helps a lot.
0: Am I right in thinking that caregivers? And the people they care for can sometimes get, especially with Alzheimer's and ADRD, can sometimes get locked into conflict. And that singing together or painting together or improvising or dancing offer opportunities for you to get, you know, to, uh, to get out of those conflictual situations. Is I that so, fair? I so
2: agree. Yeah, that that is fair. That is fair. And I've seen caregivers who are caring for someone with Alzheimer's, I've seen them like wonder, why won't you get this? Why don't you understand this? And in a sense of partially they were, they had shame around their parent having Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and partially they didn't have a, a, a bigger understanding about what was happening. And I've seen the same exact behavior towards parents that had children who had autism and didn't have the education around their child and had shame around it. And But now because people are getting more educated around Alzheimer's, there are opportunities for things to be a little bit different and for both parties to have a better quality of life.
0: Karen and Janice, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I'm really grateful to you both. Is there anything else that you would want to mention or that we haven't covered or the observations you've had? And paired with that also, just an invitation, if there is anything coming up that you would want us to know about that uh, Rush is doing or programs that you are aware of?
1: First thing I want to say is that I'm hoping that anyone who's interested in research would actually participate uh, in in research studies because the only way we're going to be able to get an answer about COVID-19 or Alzheimer's disease dementia, The only way we're gonna be able to get an answer is by following the science and by participating in research. So I wanna say that there's lots of different research studies. You can um, go online and you'll find information about all the different kinds of studies uh, by going to clinicaltrials.gov. That's one thing. The second thing is I wanted to uh, mention that we um, are co-hosting a caregiver town hall on November 10th uh, with Woodson Library. Um, which is the very first dementia-friendly library in the state of Illinois. We'll be doing that on November 10th. And um, Dr. Sheryl Woodson and Dr. Vaughn Cothran will be uh, some of the speakers for the event.
0: Got it. Thank you. Um, And of course, Carter Woodson Library is where, uh, as you mentioned, is a dementia-friendly library where we have done um, our Arts for Brain Health
2: programming for a couple of years now. Um, Janice, how about you? Anything
0: that you want to call our attention to?
2: Yeah, there's something I want to call your attention to. My coworker, uh, my colleague, Karen, is an excellent example of a person who lives her life uh, with other people in mind. And I bring that up because she's, she's like a deacon at a church. She's always helping people. She has delivered food boxes during COVID to families, but her life is active. And what happens often as we age, our friend group or activity group gets smaller so that when we have a need for a team, we don't have too many people to to call from. I don't know if people get afraid to make new friends or feel like all my friends have died because that's who they had when they were in high school, but just to encourage all of us to reach out and to continue to build community because we need each other. So it's it's like a, a person saying, I outlived all my friends, that's a sad situation because they really didn't cultivate new friendships or new activities or be part of new communities. And my colleague, Karen, is constantly, constantly cultivating new friendships, new community groups. It's amazing. And so she, she, she will not outlive her friends. And I'm cattering myself after her because she's always giving of herself. And I think it's a really good example I mean, even from her church family, people may not even be a part of that church. She's going to make sure that they get resources that a church family have to offer. Mm -hmm. And I've been a beneficiary of that. Um, But I I know that I've met many people. uh, I've gotten older and got more suspicious and decided not to give of themselves or give to themselves by creating, cultivating new friendships. And that's something that we have to just get past. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I I can speak a little bit to that as well as fully comports with my observation of Karen as well. I would testify to that same <laughs> um, phenomenon. She's a mentor, a mentor to all of us.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you both again for joining this conversation. We will keep our listeners apprised of uh, our arts for brain health work, but also I just appreciate you. Um, learning more about everything that the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center is doing, that you two are doing, the work that you're doing in the community. So thank you um, for the good work. And thank you also for spending time talking with me about it today.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, thank you very much. Yes, for the opportunity.
0: Listeners, we've mentioned the Arts for Brain Health Coalition a number of times in the course of this conversation. And that group of physicians and artists is embarking on a very cool project. As we mentioned, COVID-19 has severely limited for all of us the opportunities to visit and socialize and just hang out. But that's especially true for people who are older and maybe in more frail health. So the social isolation that many seniors face, and especially seniors with Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementia, has been intensified even further by this pandemic. And while in pre- and, you know, hopefully post-COVID times, Arts for Brain Health would bring people together to experience dance and art making and music and improvisation and bring people together to create that desperately needed sense of community, we can't do that in quite the same way right now. What we can do, though, is bring art into people's homes. And we're doing that now with a series of Arts Care Packages. It's a monthly care package that will be delivered or mailed that offers hands-on and sometimes on your feet art-making activities that seniors can do with their care partner in the comfort of their own home. And the goal is to ignite that same creative spark and connection and collaboration at home that we hope we'll eventually be able to do together again once this damn thing is over. Looking Glass, with the help of our associate board, will deliver a theater care package which has simple instructions on a series of theater exercises that anyone can do at home in the coming weeks. And if you think that's cool and would like to support that work and work of its kind, well, of course, you can do so if you go to the Looking Glass website at lookingglasstheater.org backslash donate. And that reminds me to give a quick shout out to one of the many donors who helped make all of this work possible, the Prince Charitable Trust. They've been one of our earliest supporters from the way, 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 way back, and we are honored and lucky to have their continued support of the work we do on stage and in our communities. So big thanks to them. And a big thanks to you for listening to another episode of The Infinite Room. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. Our audio engineer is Rick Sims, who also wrote our fantastic theme music. Please check out the Looking Glass website, org, to find out about other episodes of The Infinite Room and other ways that you can stay in touch with the Looking Glass family. Thank you again for listening. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, stay healthy, strong, and powerful.